In 1998, NBC News correspondent and anchor Tom Brokaw answered the question that I'm asking in the title of the sermon for tonight, is there really a greatest generation? With a resounding, yeah, the greatest generation is those Americans that were born between 1901 and 1927 who went through the ravages of the Great Depression, World War II, and yet they were resilient, they hung in there, and they sacrificed themselves just for the sake of duty. So, yeah, they're the greatest generation ever. But he's not the first to get into the generational uh, debate in American history. In 1980, Landon Jones, a Princeton-educated writer and editor of People magazine, wrote a very influential book on the baby boomers, those who were born between 1946 and 1964, and just the incredible impact that generation has had dominating American history because the largest generation that's ever existed. He described it as the pig and the python, like this python swallowed this great animal. And as that animal aged and went through, you know, with Davy Crockett coonskin caps and then Barbie dolls and all that, the economy just would swell at that particular point. Then when they got to be teenagers, the economy would swell for that particular uh, demographic, what they were trying to reach them and so on. It's continued today. And so a lot of nursing homes need to be built because the baby boomers have gotten almost all the way through the the python by now. Um, Two members of that generation, the baby boomer generation, Neil Howe and William Strauss wrote an influential book on the 13th gen. By that, they meant the 13th generation after the American Revolution. So the 13th generation in American history that we know popularly as the Baby Busters or Gen X. And not always very flattering of that particular generation, but they were more flattering. They were trying to understand. And and then I was talking to somebody this morning who said, I'm probably a millennial. I said, you don't get much good press either. I said, no, we get horrible press. You know, we like we're dumb and we're, you know, just, you know, just lazy and all. Is there really a greatest generation Clearly, when John, the author, writing this first letter, 1 John, speaks of different generations of Christians, he can't be talking about American history generations. So he would not have a clue that, oh, that GI generation that came of age during World War II, that's the greatest generation ever. Like, really? You want to, even above the generation that conquered Canaan after the Exodus, you know, or... Anyway, let that debate rage. I'm really not interested in that debate. What I'm really interested in, and looking at a different understanding slightly of generations, not looking at social generations, but familial generations. A familial generation is roughly the age it takes for a human being to grow up and to start to have children. So 20 to 30 years, historically, they've looked at. Biblically, 40 years has been a generation, but... Um, that's really more what we have in mind when we come to this first John passage. And as I'm going to argue, we're not even really talking about family or familial generations here. We're talking about spiritual generations. So that when um, John will talk about three different generations of Christians, he's not really thinking in physical terms of people of this age group and this age group and this age group. He's rather thinking in terms of stages of spiritual maturity. And I hope that that'll be clear as we read this passage together now. Just one quick point. A lot of folks say, well, no, they're not three stages. They're really just two stages. Because when John mentions children, he mentions children a lot of other times, not just in these three verses, but other times. And he's referring to all of his readers as children, spiritual children. 
And there's a good case for that because he certainly does that as you can look in chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 3, chapter 2, verse 28, chapter 3, verse 1, you know, behold um, how great the Father's love for us that we should be called the children of God. So he, he reviews us all as children, but if that's the case, if we're all included under the children rubric in 1 John 2, 14 through 17, then, I'm sorry, 12 through 14, if we're all included there, why is there a distinct um, descriptor given of the experiences of the little children as opposed to the fathers, as opposed to the young men? And then as soon as I mention those terms, some of you are thinking, you know, this is unbelievably male-dominated and unnecessarily. I mean, is Christianity really so male-dominated that there can't be any room for women here? Well, again, I think that this spiritual generation that John is talking about, he's not talking about physical ages and stages. He's not talking about gender. He's really talking about all of us, male and female, believers in Jesus who need assurance that we're part of the family of God. And that's really the point for which John is writing. As he says at the very end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 13, I've written these things to you so that you might know that you have eternal life. I want you to know. And because he wants us to know, even though he's given us some pretty hard tests already in 1 John, and they're going to be repeated in hard ways going forward, he's trying to say, but wait a minute, I don't, don't get nervous. I think of all of you as the family of God. That's his prevailing metaphor in this letter, the church as the family of God. And though, yeah, I did say that if someone says, oh, I know God, but doesn't do what he commands, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoa. And then later he's going to say, if someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar because you cannot hate your brother whom you have seen and then claim to love God whom you've never seen. And he would say, who is the liar? The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a one is the antichrist. So that word liar is very much in your face, very hard hitting, and it could cause all of us to kind of, gosh, I don't know if I'm in the body or not, if I'm in the family of God. So taking a little bit of a break, John is already into the context of love one another. And now he wants to make sure that we love one another, regardless of the stage of our spiritual experience. Listen then as I read to us, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, please open our eyes and give us understanding of what we're reading here. Please protect me from going off the rails and teaching something that's not helpful, not true, not right. Help me get it the best I can. And I pray then that you would lead us all to clear application of what you teach us in this text. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so we're talking not about social generations, not about familial generations, but about spiritual generations, different stages of a Christian's life. And yet, I still want to make the case, or I want to see each generation make its case. Is there really a greatest generation? Let's listen to the case that's made for the little children or new believers. Yeah, what, what do they have to say about that? What, what could be the case to say, yeah, it's really the new believers that are the greatest generation within the spiritual life stages. Now, I'm going to conflate. You, know, there, you all picked that up. I'm sure we read through there are three different generations mentioned in the first verse and a half, and then there are three more in the next verse and a half. So, it's this repetition. In one, it says, I am writing. and another, it says, I write. One's a present tense in the Greek. One's an aorist tense in the Greek. Ooh, that's significant. I don't think it really is. I think that the, it's a nomic aorist that's used here. And it's really just saying, not just am I am writing now this to you. I always write this. This is the contribution, the spiritual experience of new believers. This is the one of mature believers. And that is the one for growing believers. So we're just going to focus then, not going through everyone twice. We're going to go through each of these generations once to make the case, is this the greatest generation? Could be for this new believer generation because they have the experience of forgiveness. That's what's singled out for them. And the first mention and the second mention is of adoption. But they're just baby Christians. And yet baby Christians are the most joyful of all Christians because for the first time in their lives, they have grasped that they are forgiven for all of their sins, not because of anything they did to deserve it, but because of what Christ did on the cross for them. And they are overcome with joy. Like we little Zacchaeus climbed up the sycamore tree, comes down, Jesus said, I'm going to have to lunch at your house, has lunch at his house. And he is overjoyed and gives all of his ill-gotten gains away and gives even on the gotten gains, the, the ones that were legal, he, he gives off of those as well. He's just full of giddy joy because he's a baby Christian. Well, that's, that's a pretty good claim for what might be the greatest generation that we're, we're like that when we're, when we're just brand new in the faith. Without the experience of that generation, that spiritual stage, John had another thing to say when he wrote for, uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, and he spoke to the church at Ephesus, and he said, you know, you're all doing great in so many ways. You've got a lot going for you. You're hardcore. You're enduring. You do these good works. I've got one thing against you. You've left your first love. Ugh, that's not good. So what would it be like to have a body of Christ, a family of God, without any new believers in it? Ugh. No joy, really. None of this giddy kind of free-floating, you know, daddy, Abba, you know, this adoption of sons that the second time through it says, I write to you children because you know the Father. That you, you have this sense of your daddy and you're just so overjoyed. All right, here's an illustration for you. Um, I love the Indiana Jones series all the way up into the fourth one that just got published. Or, you know, we watched this last year. Um, the first one was fabulous, caught me by surprise. I, wasn't, I didn't know anything about the movies. And the second one I really wanted to see, but I never saw it in the theater because a friend, a spiritual brother said, it's dark, it's not good, it's, it's really bad. Well, it is, I can tell you now, it's got a lot of creepy, bad, yeah, darkness, but I have seen it on TV now, I have to say. And the one thing that is interesting about that second one, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, it pictures 
a village without any children. Ugh, this is so sad. And so Indiana Jones brings the children back at the end and everybody's happy again. So that's, that's a good thing. That's the redeeming value of the ending of the movie. But picture that. A family of God in which there are no new believers. Nobody who just has come to know Christ and is refreshing in that. Maybe that's the greatest generation in the family of God. Well, but don't, don't get ahead of yourself. There's another generation to come. I'm also writing to you fathers. I'm writing to you fathers. I'm talking about not the next generation coming along, those new believers, but the last generation, the, the mature Christians, the one who've had their run and they're almost to the end of the race. And what if we didn't have them? I mean, what do they have really to contribute um, to the body of Christ? Well, I think what they have to contribute in their experience is they have an experience of knowing God, of knowing God, not knowing about God, but knowing God. J.I. Packer had that classic book called Knowing God, which is wonderful. I recommend it to anyone trying to understand God better and understand why do we need to understand God better. But he says this in chapter two, I walked in the sunshine with a scholar who had effectively forfeited his prospects of academic advancement by clashing with church dignitaries over the gospel of grace. But it doesn't matter, he said at length, for I've known God and they haven't. The remark was a mere parenthesis, a passing comment on something I had said, but it has stuck with me and set me thinking. What could be greater than to know God, to know him who is from the beginning, as it says in verse uh, uh, 13, and then again in verse 14, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning the eternal God, and you long for fellowship with him. You know, without that goal of fellowship with God, we become human doings rather than human beings. That the young and the vigorous, you know, the the baby Christians and then the strong middle, you know, young adult Christians, you know, can, can push so hard for getting everything done. Let's get the mission accomplished and, and all of that. And then they can forget that, oh, What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To know him. We're human beings. Just when we're being, we can experience the greatness of knowing God. One thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, says David in Psalm 27. That I may behold the beauty of the Lord and meditate in his temple. Moses used to speak to the Lord face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend in Exodus 33, verse 11 and following. We see a close relationship, like a friendship. Enoch walked with God, and God took him. He's kind of, as one paraphrase put it, Enoch was out for another of the many walks that he had with God. Their fellowship was really close. They were great. And God said, you know, you just want to sleep over tonight. You want to just stay here? And he did. Never died. He just... That's what life is really all about. As Paul said, that I may know him, that I may know Christ, that there's nothing greater. And Jesus himself in John 17, three, in his high priestly prayer, he says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. That's really what we are all aspiring to, ultimately, to know God who created us and redeemed us, that we might have that close fellowship with him. And that is the contribution of the experiences of the mature Christians. What would it be like 
to be in a village not without any children, but in a village without any grandparents. What would your world be like if you had never had any grandparents? And my wife never did know any of her grandparents. Both her parents were orphans. But for others of you, it's, I can't imagine not having my grandparents or not having any older and wiser people there. You know, we baby Christians have the deep experience of forgiveness, but these older Christians have the experience of wisdom and of fellowship with God. I'd hate to miss out on that. Maybe that's the greatest generation. Well, we got one more to look at. Why don't we look at what about the mature Christians? Not the new Christians, not the, uh, you know, mature Christians, but but the growing Christians, the one that are in their prime, like Coach Prime. Well, these are the prime Christians. They have the experience of vigorous spiritual warfare. And that expresses itself in two key ways. One, individually in their sanctification, their pursuit of holiness. These young men, as it said, but again, I don't think gender is a factor here. It's talking about young Christians who are vigorously pursuing holiness, which is a good thing. And they are disciplined in their pursuit. And as this text says in the second mention of what is valuable about these young, because they are strong and the word of God abides in them. They're making diligent application of the means of grace. They're using God's word to build them up and to train them. They look for a Bible study where they can really get down and get deep and get accountable to other people who will help them grow. They pray regularly. They're here tonight to have the Lord's Supper together. I want to take advantage of all of these things. I am vigorously running the race that is set before me with endurance. And I'm running in such a way as to win, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, that we ought to run in such a way as to win. So, yeah. I'm going for it like that. Wow, that's pretty scary to be around people like that. They're so intense and they're, they're doing so great. But, and that's not the only expression of that vigorous nature of their strength. Also in mission, it's these young believers, these, well, they're young, but they're, they're growing believers who are pushing the mission of the church. Like Andy's video, I mean, you know, to be traveling as much as Andy does is amazing. But to see those on the front lines all over the world who are trying to take the gospel to places that it's never been heard. And it's not easy. It requires a lot of sacrifice, learning a new language, learning a new culture, being, you know, forgetting all of the pleasures of what I grew up with. Oh, that's impressive. So we're tempted to think maybe that's the greatest um, of the generations. What would it be like to have a village without any young people there. I mean, young people, but I mean young prime people, prime aged adults that are getting it done. That'd be pretty grim. Would the church get anything done without that kind of stage of spiritual um, growth and experience being expressed? Here's an illustration for you. What about the song that I think we all know? Well, again, I'm a certain generation, but there is a song out there called, Where Have All the Flowers Gone? And it probably sounds really lame to those of you that are of a younger generation. Generation Z or Alpha Generation or whatever. It's out, but if, where have all the flowers gone? Young girls pick them, every one. Well, where have all the young girls gone? Well, they've gone to young men, every one. Well, where have all the young men gone? Well, they've gone to soldiers, every one. Well, where have all the soldiers gone? Well, they've gone to flowers, every one. The lost generation in American history was often called the lost generation because the pinnacle of their experience when they came of age was World War I. The war to end all worlds, wars that did not end all wars, and it was horrible. And especially in Europe, the devastation of an entire generation of young men, in this case mostly, who were killed and weren't there to make their contributions to society, 
I wouldn't want to miss that generation in the family of God either. Okay, so is it time to vote? Well, it it could be, but let me just say in conclusion, this is my understanding of why John is including these verses here. He's reminding us that I'm really writing so that you will know that you have eternal life. I'm writing to assure you. I'm writing to assure you that regardless of your stage in the spiritual life, you're very much included and very much valued in the family of God. We need your distinctive contribution. You and I, each one of us is a sort of everyman, that term that is used in all the way back from the 1400s of morality plays in Europe. This, this person who sort of stands for all of us, a person, and it still goes on today in movies and novels, where the writer is trying to depict someone that we can all identify with and will enter into the drama because of that identification. Well, each one of us is that. Each one of us is going to have all three of these experience, experiences of forgiveness, of fighting, of fellowship. All three are important for all of us, but at different times in our lives, they become more important. This meal that we get ready to share now as the culmination of our worship tonight is a meal for all ages, a meal for all stages of spiritual maturity. In this meal, we are told by the Apostle Paul that to do this, and by Jesus himself, to do this in remembrance of him. We're to look back. We're to look back to what Jesus did to procure our forgiveness. And in that look back, our hearts melt and we want to live for him. In this meal, we're also told this is my body. This is my cup of the covenant. Is right now, tonight. This is your food for the fight that you need in order to make it in sanctification and in your mission. We need this meal for strength, for spiritual strength now. So it's also for that stage of spiritual maturity. And we're also told as we come to this supper that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he comes. There's a future component. And that aspiration of fellowship with the Lord Jesus and with the Spirit and with the Father that will last forever and ever compels us, draws us. So... Which is the greatest of those spiritual generations? It'd be really hard to tell, but there might be one that you especially need to aspire to tonight and to appreciate and to make part of your life. So as we prepare to come to this um, service and as we prepare to move next week in 1 John 2, 15 to 17 on our former family, not the family of God, but the family of this world and all of its values, let's remember that we're in this family now. And let's ask God to prepare us for this table. Father in heaven, we are amazed that we can call you Father. That we are the children of God, and yet that is what we are. Whether we're brand new born into the family, whether we're toward the end of our experience with the family, we've matured, we've grown for years, we've known you for 50, 60, 70, 80 years. Or whether we are in the vigor of the prime of our spiritual journey where we are with strength attacking our holiness, attacking the mission that Christ left with us. Whatever our current state, Lord, help us to value those that are in the other states. And we pray, Father, that you would meet with us in this supper as as you promised that where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are in the midst. We ask all of these incredible requests 
In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen.